I would like to share with you some of the things I have learned over the years. The impact of spiritualism on feminism and gender issues today. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we come to you as empty vessels, willing and wanting to be filled, and more than filled, we want to be used. So this morning, as we discuss your great controversy, we ask that all the holy angels crowd in here and beat back the evil angels, and we ask that you will please be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. By way of introduction, I was born and reared in Bangkok, Thailand. My parents are doctors, and they were missionaries in Bangkok, Thailand, and so that's where I was born, and that was where I was reared. I had so much fun as a child growing up, but I found out that I love doing God's work. I love being a missionary, and as a child, we would go out to all these various places and do all these wonderful things, and I just love that. And I determined very early on that I really wanted to share God's word and to be a missionary. That meant that I love God and his word, and every Christmas or, or any birthday, people would ask me, well, what do you want for your birthday? And I'd say, oh, I want messages to young people, or I want first volume of the selected messages, or I want whatever book of the, uh, the Spirit of Prophecy collection I was up to, because I love to study, even as a kid. And so I, I, it was natural for me to go on to get a BA in theology at AUC, and then an MDiv at Andrews, and then an MSPH at Loma Linda, because I believe in the health work, too. And so we just um, really enjoyed sharing through the years. Now my husband, I did marry my husband after my Andrews years. Uh, he was ordained, um, but at my husband's ordination, I declined ordination, even as a local elder. And that is because of some of the things I learned at the seminary. I wished to serve the Lord, but there were three papers that I did at the seminary that have shaped my ministry and my whole philosophy. And I am going to be sharing one of them with you this morning. First Testimonies 421 has a very interesting statement, but it greatly puzzled me. It goes like this. Those who feel called out to join the movement in favor of women's rights and the so-called dress reform movement might as well sever all connection with the third angel's message. That was very strong because it linked, number one, women's rights with severing connection with the third angel's message. And I thought, what in the world in the women's rights movement was so objectionable? The spirit which attends the one cannot be in harmony with the other. The scriptures are plain, notice that, plain upon the relations and rights of men and women. Okay, notice that the spirit is plain, and we, it's not something that should be difficult for us. Spiritualists have, to quite an extent, adopted the singular mode of dress, and so it's in the context of the dress. Seventh-day Adventists who believe in the restoration of the gifts are often branded as spiritualists. Let them adopt this costume and their influence is dead. So here we have 
women's rights being connected to spiritualism. And I thought, what is this all about? And so in my study, now remember, this is before CD-ROMs, before internet, before all those things, because I'm an old lady. We had to find out what was going on in the spirit of prophecy when she was talking about the women's rights and spiritualism being connected. What was happening? And so day after day, I would sit down in the white estate there and I'd go through all the Review and Heralds. I'd look down every column. I'd find every article having to do with women. And I would write them all down on these yellow sheets. I didn't even use a typewriter. We didn't have computers back then. It was all handwriting it right there. And then I'd go and I'd study and I'd study. And this is what I came up with. Number one, scriptures are plain on the relations and rights of men and women. And that's what the rest of this seminar is talking about, is how the scriptures are plain on these things. Number two, women's rights and the third angel's messages are incompatible. But somehow there is a connection between women's rights and spiritualism. But how? So women's rights and spiritualism. How was women's rights a forerunner, forerunner of feminism related to spiritualism? I want to go back and I want to study a little bit about spiritualism. I have categorized spiritualism as type 1 and type 2. And I'm going to explain exactly what I mean by type 1 spiritualism and type 2 spiritualism. It, spiritualism all started in the garden uh, right here on earth. And Eve ventured away from her husband and ended up at the tree that she was forbidden to be at. And right then, in Genesis 3, 4, we have Satan's first lie. And that is, ye shall not surely die. First, first lie of Satan. And what this means is if the dead are not dead, the devil can directly communicate with people here on earth through wrappings, through seances, through appearances, through levitations, all kinds of manners. But in Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 14, we find that God very specifically calls it an abomination. All these kinds of things are an abomination, and we should not have anything to do with it as God's people. But there is a part two spiritualism, a type two spiritualism, and that has to do with Satan's second lie. Genesis 3, 5, Satan says, ye shall be as gods. Now, what does this really imply? Tree of knowledge of good and evil was forbidden wisdom. It was woman versus God, her judgment against God's judgment. God said no. Woman overrides God's judgment and goes ahead and does it anyway. So she believes the servant, serpent over God. She becomes the norm, and she ultimately becomes God. Do you see that? That is what I call type 2 spiritualism. Great Controversy talks about both these kinds of spiritualism, and Great Controversy on page 554 says, and this is talking about philosophical spiritualism now, 
we are all gods. And I, let me unpack that just a little bit. It's type two spiritualism here. Spiritualism teaches that man is a creature of progression, that it is his destiny from his birth to progress even to eternity toward the Godhead. That's right in Great Controversy 554. My fellow man were all were unfallen demigods, and another declares any just and perfect being is Christ. Now that's blasphemous. All right, another aspect of philosophical spiritualism is that anything is okay. He declares through the spirits that true knowledge places men above all law, that whatever is, is right, that God does not condemn, and that all sins which are committed are innocent. This is what uh, the old book meant when it was saying, I'm okay, you're okay, okay? You do anything you want, but it's okay, no problem. You may be all messed up, but never mind, it's okay. You believe the way you want, I believe the way I want, and everybody is fine, and this is a great, great problem because this is philosophical spiritualism. Whatever is, is right. Type two spiritualism. Love makes immoral acts between consulting adults okay. All right, there's another aspect here of philosophical spiritualism, type two, it voids scriptural authority. Ellen White again in uh, Great Controversy 557 says, it is true that spiritualism is assuming a Christian guise. While it formerly denounced Christ and the Bible, it now professes to accept both. But the Bible is interpreted, notice that, in a manner that is pleasing to the unrenewed heart while its solemn and vital truths are made of no effect, okay? So, type two philosophical spiritualism, void scriptural authority. It's made of no effect. All right, there's another aspect of philosophical spiritualism and that is that it fosters the seeds of rebellion, type two. I will be like the Most High, Isaiah 14, 14, was Satan's war cry against God's authority. Satan's pride in his own glory and jealousy of Christ nourished his desire for supremacy. He spread his spirit of discontent and dissatisfaction against God's form of loving, giving, unselfish government. The result was unsubmissive disobedience. Satan's government is controlling, it's oppressive, it's cruel versus God's loving, transparent service with no need for recognition. Before sin, nobody even knew there was a law. That's how transparent God's love and his government is. Everybody did what they wanted to do because they desired to do it from the inside out. And it made a huge difference after sin came because then the cruelness and the oppression came in. God's way is a law of love. It goes low in service, and they, we only take to give. Um, sometimes we think of service as being very negative, but in fact, service is beautiful. We want to give. Luke 17 talks about the servant that goes out and works all day long, works and works and works, and he comes home, 
And instead of the master looking at him and saying, you know, just go home. You've had a hard day. No, he says, feed me first. Then you can do whatever you want. And what was the response of the servant? He didn't say, absolutely not. I've had a hard day. I'm, I'm, it's time for me to go home. No, he, he said, I'm a, a servant. I'm happy to do anything. And only God can give us that unending serving attitude because in ourselves, we, we resist it, we hate it, we will have nothing to do with it in ourselves. But God gives and he gives and he gives so that we can give and give and give. And we can be a fountain of service to others because of that, that faucet that God keeps pouring down into us. So let's talk about the spiritualism and the beginning of the women's movement. How does this all pull together? How can we understand what is really happening here? Did Adventists recognize this connection between spiritualism way back then? Yes, in fact, that's how I even knew about it is because uh, people like Uriah Smith and J.H. Wagoner had articles about spiritualism in the review. And I just happened to read that. I'm sure the Lord led me to them because the Lord is full of providences. You know, things that you somehow just catch your eye, you look at and oh, and it opens a whole nother area that you need to go study. It's exciting. Spiritualism, as J.H. Wagoner defined, denied all laws of God and allowed instead personal intuition and inclination. Okay, that's self, inside. It denied the existence of sin. Human beings are not accountable. It has done away with all systems of morality. And that's from his book, Nature and Tendency of Modern Spiritualism, page 66. Type 2, spiritualism. So our our pioneers knew all about what was going on. Today, the authors freely acknowledge the connection between spiritualism and women's rights. Uh, Anne Brody, Radical Spirits, Spiritualism and Women's Right in the 19th Century, a, a book that's been out for a while now. And another more recent book by Gar uh, Barbara Goldsmith called Other Powers talking about spiritualism and women's rights leaders of that time. Notice what Ann Brody said in her book on page two. Spiritualism was a new religious movement dominated by women. Did you notice that? Mm -hmm. Dominated by women. Its two strong attractions were rebellion against death, in other words, espousing necromancy, and rebellion against authority ye shall be as gods. And so here we have type one in the rebellion against death and type two in the rebellion against authority, both in, uh, seen in the early spiritualism. So let's talk about classical spiritualism first. The dead give guidance. Well, of course, you've heard of the Fox sisters in 1849. Uh, this was really the beginning of American modern spiritualism. And they had necromancy, and it became a show, objects moving and spirits appearing and tables levitating, all based on type one spiritualism, ye shall not surely die. Did you know that spiritualists were among the first to ordain women? Very interesting. Another uh, person that uh, we'll talk about is Elizabeth Cady Stanton. 
Now, Elizabeth Cady Stanton was really, I should say, the foremost person in women's rights of the uh, 1860s, 70s. Um, she had spiritualistic dabblings of type one. She heard spirit raps. She was super antagonistic to the Bible and to the clergy, type two. Okay, so type one, she heard the spirit raps and she was antagonistic to the Bible and the cler clergy. And we'll, we'll unpack all of this as we go along. There was a, t a certain table called the McClintock Spirit Table uh, that was keyed very strongly in her life because she was instrumental in the first women's rights convention at Seneca Falls where they put out the Declaration of Rights and Sentiments and it was signed in 1848. She was the primary person to write this article, this declaration, but it was written on this McClintock spirit table. And listen to this quote from Goldsmith, page 32. As members of the group presented their ideas, the table began to vibrate with raps of approval from the spirits. So where did that declaration of rights and sentiments come from? That is the question, right from the devil himself. And this table, you might say, well, what's so big about a table? This table was actually at the head of her coffin at her funeral. It played such an important um, contribution to her life, and it is in the Smithsonian today. Okay, That's how important this is. Let's go on and discuss uh, Stanton a little bit more. Let's look at some of her views on marriage and family. She was actually a forerunner of the feministic ideas of marriage and home life repressing women. Uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, she hated the biblical roles of male as head and female as submissive. She categorized these as slavery, and she railed against them so strongly, and she blamed these roles on the fault of organized religion. This is why she hated the, the clergy, she hated the Bible, and she called for full equality in marriage, now term egalitarian. Now, what do we mean by full equality in marriage? Both partners should be free to come and go. No hierarchy. There's equality, fraternity, mutuality. Remember that word. Friendship as a basis for a family government. And this is the what kind of marriage she wanted everybody to be able to enjoy. That's Stanton and marriage. We'll come back to that later on as we discuss what's going on today. What about Stanton and the Bible? She hated the Bible, as I just said. So she decided that she was going to make her own Bible. And it would be called the Woman's Bible, but not all written by her, of course. She got solicited uh, from all the scholar, women scholars of the world, uh, come and help me to make this Bible. Unfortunately, she really had a hard time because people didn't want to put their name to this kind of cause. And so she really had a hard time getting people to come help her. But eventually, she published this woman's Bible. 
and it is a prototype of feminist theology today. So now we're going we're going to see how the spiritualistic uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton had such an impact on feminist theology today. So let's look at this. Stanton disliked the clergy and churches, and she felt they oppressed women. She disliked the Bible because of the Pauline and other negative, negative passages toward women. So let's reinterpret it. Type two spiritualism. So how did she do it? She had to use higher critical methodology, which, by the way, was in full swing during the day. And notice this quote from her Bible. Whatever progress women has made in any department of effort she has accomplished independently of and in opposition to the so-called inspired and infallible word of God and that this book has been a more injury to her than has any other which has ever been written in the history of the world. End of quote. Blasphemous, isn't it? But this was in her Bible. So... Let's talk a little bit about what higher criticism is, all right? Because we don't want to just be throwing around terms. We don't know what we're talking about. Higher criticism supposes that the Bible is a man-made book that records man's experiences, focusing on biases of authors, and explains them by their cultures, all right? I hope you heard words, uh, heard sounds like that, cultures. Instead of the Bible being the voice of God with universal norms that transcend all cultures, the Bible is very human and is authored by men with distinct biases and orientations, and it's full of errors and discrepancies. All right, this is what higher critical methodology does. It causes doubt because the stories that are there, they may not be true, but the person that wrote them believed them, so therefore they're important for us to understand, okay? And this is why people that are actual atheists can teach in universities in the Old Testament or New Testament department because they use this kind of framework and it's just literature and anybody can talk about literature and that's what the Bible is uh, cut out to be. This makes of none effect. We shudder at this if we read the plain scripture and make it read something completely opposite to what it really says because of interpretation, tradition, or cultural background, or for whatever reason, we have made of none effect the word of God. Very, very. So making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered, is what Jesus said in Mark 7, 13. Please, let's none of us make of none effect God's word. That is, that is tragic. It is type two spiritualism. Okay, let's move on and let's talk about Stanton and, and women's clothing. The bloomers were a start. Uh, Stanton early realized that the ridiculous clothing of the day hampered women from accomplishing everything a man could do. She, uh, may I just put a parenthesis in here, Ellen White thought so too, not because of this, but Ellen White was against the women's fashions of the day because they were very full and they, they swept along the streets and whatever was in the streets got mopped up by their beautiful dresses and went home with them and spread germs that their toddlers would be crawling through. And it was a horrible mess. Well, Stanton had other reasons besides hygiene to talk about these dresses. This uh, hampered a woman from accomplishing anything a man could do. So 
She wore these bloomers to start with, but the rejection was so overwhelming, she, it didn't last long. She gave it up very soon. But it was the first step towards similar clothing, and this is a picture of one. So Stanton, we have seen, was way ahead of her times. And even though she was ahead of her times, all of her spiritualistic ideas have been embraced by modern feminism. Marriage is open, easy divorce, lesbianism, uh, scripture is reinterpreted, God is renamed, and cross-dressing is more accepted. Okay, we, she was the, one of the most important persons in the women's rights movement. We want to shift gears now and talk about Victoria C. Woodhull, who was really exemplified spiritualism blended with women's rights. Kenny C. Claflin, who was her sister, and Victoria Woodhull, they were sisters, came to public notice as mediums. Uh, both had visions and trances and could tell fortunes. They, they really were gypsies to start with, but because of their great beauty and their great intelligence, uh, they became the first women stockbrokers on Wall Street. They had illicit liaisons with uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt, and he set them up on Wall Street and gave them great success. And these beautiful women had a great influence of that time. It, the women's rights people didn't know exactly how to treat the, this, these two women. They were almost uh, repulsive. But she, Victoria Woodhull actually had a chance to address the Congressional Committee on Women's Suffrage. And after that, the, the women's rights leaders embraced them because they, they, she got so far. Victoria Woodhull, under the guidance of Andrew Pearl, a spiritualist, again, notice this, helped her realize her potential and her calling. He prophesied her realizing her potential rise to power, and she became the first woman to run for president of these United States on a woman's rights and spiritualistic platform in 1872. Victoria C. Woodhull. Now let's go on to discuss her morality. This was really the beginnings of the sexual revolution. Uh, in a speech she went out that's quoted in Smith, she said, they say I have come to break up the family. I say amen to that with all my heart. In a perfected sexuality shall a continuous life be found. Such to me, my brothers and sisters, is the sublime mission of spiritualism to be outwrought through the sexual emancipation of women and a return to self-ownership and to individualized existence. Type two, spiritualism, blatant. J.H. Wagner quoted this in the review. After having blasphemed religion, laughed at the decencies of social life, scoffed at marriage, and advocated universal prostitution, this notorious woman concluded by stating it was the sublime mission of spiritualism to free the human race from the thraldom of matrimony and to establish sexual emancipation type two. So she was the prototype of feminism today. Notice these quotes from current authors. Victoria never stopped believing that the spirits had brought her to the world to lead a social revolution, she said from her birth and even before she had been marked for this fate. In her life and views, this is uh, another author, 
She was more than a century before her time, said Gloria Steinem, one of today's leading feminists. She urges women to catch the spirit of the real Victoria Woodhull. Hmm. What kind of spirit are we to catch? It's a problem. So we have seen that uh, Uriah Smith and J.H. Wagoner had articles, and notice what Uriah Smith said. He told how the career of Mrs. Woodhull was planned and executed thus far wholly by the spirits. So now we want to shift gears, and we've talked about the past. How did uh, early women's rights uh, connect with spiritualism? And see, are the goals of feminism still spiritualistic today? The agenda for feminism is to change the church, and these are the areas that feminism wishes to change the church in. Number one, God. How can women identify with a male God and a male Jesus? They want to change God. Language, it must be made inclusive. So all of scripture uh, must be made inclusive. Bible interpretation. Since the Bible is plain about the role of women, it must be interpreted through higher critical methodology. Church organization. Male pastors and elders must be replaced with equal numbers of women on all leadership levels. Notice they never say all. They always, it's equal. It's always got to be equal. And no distinctions between men and women. Anyone is okay doing anything in the church, okay to marry anyone even across gender lines. So let's first of all look at God in feminist. Mary Daly, a Roman Catholic nun, she's since died. Her famous quip was, if God is male, then male is God. And of course, a feminist can't have that. Notice what else she said. The fatherhood of God is, in fact, a product of this dom domination of males spawned in the human imagination. That's who God is. So feminists are uncomfortable with the maleness of Jesus as our Savior. So they often rename Jesus as Christa or Child of Sophia, or Wisdom's Child. Notice this uh, picture here of Edwina Sandy's Krista mounted at New York's Cathedral in St. John the Divine, a nude woman on a cross. That is how they like to think of Jesus. So let's talk about the language now. How do they transform the language? Putting more women in the pulpit. This is a quote from Newsweek, February 13, 1989. It's a while back, but notice what it says. Putting more women in the pulpit is no longer the prime goal of Christian feminists. Rather, their aim is a thorough and comprehensive transformation of the language, symbols, and sacred texts of the Christian faith. Thorough and comprehensive transformation of the language. The issue is no longer equality, says Margaret McManus. The issue is transformation of our religious institutions. We're going to change it. So let's take a look at feminism and the Bible these days. We find that Mrs. Stanton's views were very tame by comparison. First, before I want to look there, I want to just look a little bit about how we think about the scripture itself. Scripture is divine and human. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, we're told in 2 Timothy 3.16. And Ellen White in Great Controversy, page five says, the Bible points to God as its author, okay? 
God is perfect, so his way is perfect, and that's what the Bible says in Psalm 19:7. The law of the Lord is perfect. And Psalm 92:15 says, to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Keep that in mind as we start to talk about this. The scripture is divine, but how is it also human? Even though scripture is given by God, it is written by human beings. And this is a quote from First Selected Messages 26. The treasure was entrusted to earthen vessels, yet it is nonetheless from heaven. The testimony is conveyed through the imperfect expression of human language, yet it is the testimony of God. All right, and then this quote, write this one down. It's so important. Education 173. The Bible is not biased by human beings. Here only can we find a history of our race unsullied by human prejudice or human pride. Okay, really an important quote. Notice this quote also from Great Controversy 595. Before accepting any doctrine or precept, we should demand a plain, thus saith the Lord in its support. So we should take plain and obvious the meaning of the text, not some contrived manufactured cultural meaning like higher critical methods. We say when we read the Bible that the seventh day means the seventh day, not just any day that when Jesus told us to wash feet, he meant wash feet, not wash hands or wash something else. He meant wash feet. We take what the Bible says. Uh, look at Upward Look, page 52. Compare scripture with scripture. Study the difficult passages. Compare verses with verse. You will find that scripture is the key that unlocks scripture. Check the context. Often the meaning is obvious right there in the context. What are the uh, theologians, feminist theologians? Here's Mary Daly again on the Bible. Biblical authors were merely men of their times who could never be free of the prejudice of their epochs. Therefore, women of the church have just as much right to direct current theology as Paul did in scripture to act as prophets and guide the church in a whole new direction. Mary, uh, Mary Daly, Church in the Second Sex, page 185. But is the Bible biased? I just read you, here only we find a history of our race, unsullied by human prejudice or human pride. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that, that God could have guided and so that it is not prejudice? Amen. Amen. Feminist theologian Elizabeth Schusler-Fiorenza in Emerging Issues and uh, Feminist Biblical Interpretation says, women today not only rewrite biblical stories, just keep in mind, this is all fiction we're talking about. They rewrite it, okay? They rewrite biblical stories about women, but also reformulate patriarchal prayers and create feminist rituals celebrating our ancestors. We rediscover in story and poetry, in drama and liturgy, in song and dance, our biblical four sisters' sufferings and victories. In ever new images and symbols, we seek to rename the God of the Bible and the significance of Jesus. We not only spin tales about the voyages of Prisca, the missionary, notice that, 
about Junia the Apostle, notice that, but also dance Sarah's circle and experience prophetic enthusiasm. We sing litanies of praise to our four sisters and pray laments of warning for the lost stories of our foremothers. Feminist biblical interpretation. What about feminism and church organization today? I would just like to stay here that ordination is really just a step. This is not the end of the battle, by the way. If you think this is the end, you are very naive. Ordination allows the equality in the church that women are after. Women must be allowed full equality as elders or ministers. The top rungs of leadership must be without regard to gender. And ordination is only the entry wedge that makes all this possible. So you have to reinterpret plain scripture to promote equality. The school, uh, culture reinterprets the word. Feminism uses the culture to change meanings of literal words of scripture. And culture today inspires hermeneutic. The whole Bible interpretation is a method that's really at risk in all of this question. If we think it's ordination, we've missed it. The issue is hermeneutics, how we interpret the scripture. And this is why we have to be very attentive to this whole issue. Uh, determined efforts uh, are made by Satan and his followers to go ahead, whether the churches agree or oppose. And it is split churches. It's very, very sad. Uh, we faced an alpha of apostasy way back when our only, Ellen White said, our only hope is simple childlike interpretation of scripture. And she, Ellen White rebuked Kellogg for spiritualizing away the plain, simple, real word of God. This was the alpha of apostasy, she, she said. The omega is much worse, still to come, must also include Bible interpretation. And we need to be watching for that omega. And in this whole debate, we miss the whole point of the thing. All of us are to be working for the Lord enthusiastically and with gladness. There's nothing that women can't do except two things, just like that tree. You know, God said, only one tree you can't go near. And women, we can do anything in the church except be elder and minister. What's the, what's the big deal about that, you know? For years, we've been doing that. And, and suddenly, it's like uh, a huge hurdle we have to do. And some people are rebellious. We will go our own way at any cost or leave. Some have gotten so hung up on ordination that they've been discouraged from doing anything. And the only one who has really benefited from any of this controversy in the church is the devil. Where is the heart of unity that Jesus wanted to see? Some may say, oh, but those are just radical feminists. We don't believe that way. But feminists evolve. People progress in their ideas. When I was back studying the feminists of the day, the evangelical feminists were Scanzoni, Hardesty, Molencott. But now they've left their evangelicalism and have gone on to join liberal uh, religious feminism. In order to embrace the, uh, both the Bible and feminism, they end up compromising the word of God, which is very, very dangerous. So how the Bible is interpreted to do away with the plain word. Feminist theologians, they don't believe the word is from God anyway. The word is from biased men and that's why there's not much about women in it. So let's just discard it and fantasize and use some of the names. That's the basic idea of feminist theology. Evangelical and Adventist theologians do not go that way, okay? 
they do more this kind of thing. Uh, they'll say the passages are ad hoc, meaning just for that culture and that time. Example is First uh, Timothy 2, chapters 2 and 3. They were limited to a local problem, having, a, having little relevance beyond the first century church of Ephesus, okay? So they'll, they'll use that kind of argumentation. Or they'll, they'll talk about an interpretive center where the overall picture of God and the major driving themes of the Bible are used to filter out texts that do not fit. And of course, Galatians 3.28 uh, becomes the privileged clear text that filters out all the other passages. And so this is what happens today with, with it. Now, there's another whole aspect of this that I want to get into because Victoria C. Woodhull brought this out very strongly, and that is understanding gender and morality. There are gender issues. There is a reason God is interested in distinctions in roles and dress. He created male and female. But United Nations International Research and Training Institute for the Advancement of Women, or INSTRAW, in quote, says, persons, notice how it's defined, its definition for gender. Persons are not necessarily born with specific gender. Gender develops culturally, socially, politically, or economically. The coal is pansexuality, will be accepted anywhere. Male, female, homosexual, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, omnisexual, doesn't matter. We want it everywhere uh, acceptable. Another quote from Instraw, gender is a concept that refers to a system of roles and relationships between women and men that are determined not by biology, but the social, political, and economic context. One's biological sex is a natural given. Gender is constructed. So young women openly enter into intimate relationships with both genders that are more just experiments. They resist being described as straight or gay or even bisexual, which some suggest promiscuity and one night stands. Instead, they use words like fluid or omnisexual. The family is redefined to mean two roommates, not a man and a woman. So you, today's term, when you talk to somebody out in the world, they'll say, this is my partner. They don't say, this is my spouse. They don't say, this is my husband. This is my wife. They say, this is my partner. Partner covers everything, and it is the new term. Watch for it. When I was a student, I went to a biblical um, meeting that's very liberal, and uh, I, I went to go to a, a, a small closed session for women, and I thought in my naivety that they would be talking about um, how to reach women or something like that, and I had no idea what I was getting into, but they started talking about androgyny, and I, I didn't even know what androgyny meant, and they were, kept talking about it, and so I didn't dare raise my hand and say, now what is androgyny? But I went home and I looked it up. The term androgyny is Greek, derived from the Greek word aner um, and gune, meaning women, referring to the combination of masculine and feminine characteristics. And here you see a picture of Athena, Greek goddess of heroes, who is androgynous. It's a combination of masculine and feminine uh, characteristics with no distinctions. Pansexuality is, and acceptance is the ultimate goal. 
And notice this quote, one of the biggest and most prevalent mistakes in Western culture is the idea that there exists two separate and opposite genders, masculinity and femininity. This gender dualism is not only false and without any factual or scientific support, but also very harmful. Same fellow Thomas Grabstad says, so I'm interested in anything that blurs, transforms, or recreates gender, puts a new perspective on gender, or just any weird ideas or expressions of gender. You may thus conclude I want to deconstruct gender, but that is at best a half-truth, because I'm even more interested in reconstructing gender. So we get all kinds of fashion people saying, yep, you're doing it right. And we have all kinds of uh, people today wearing clothes that depict both genders and men that want to be women, but Deuteronomy 22.5 says, the woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. So, dress has always expressed philosophy, and if you're trying to blur the distinction between male and female, there's one way of doing it. When you look for a restroom, you're looking for a dress or pants. And this uh, kind of tells, Stanton and the Bloomers expressed equality. Trousers for women were finally accepted after world, uh, during World War II because of working in the factories. 1960s, the pantsuits came in with hippies and the new age, and today jeans are everywhere, and they are androgynous. Today we have uh, girl power. Victor Victoria Woodhull used it. Women now encouraged to use it. Girls rule, boys drool. Third wave feminism is using sexuality to get power. So women are released from their home. Stanton and Woodhull's dream that women be released from home and childcare has finally come to pass. Today, the beautiful role of mothering is disdained. Women's careers are the all important thing, some willing to dispose of unborn children because they're inconvenient. And that's why abortion is a feminist issue, because it is a matter of choice. Notice what the second Bible commentary, Ellen White, page 1008 says. Would that every mother could realize how great are her duties and her responsibilities. How great will be the reward of faithfulness. The mother's daily influence upon her children is preparing them for everlasting life or eternal death. She exercises in her home a power more decisive than the minister in the desk, hello, or even the king upon his throne. All right, the power of a mother. Great Controversy 557 and 558, I'm just re recapping here, it is true that spiritualism is now changing its form, unveiling some of its more objectionable features, and it is assuming a Christian guise, type two. While it formally denounced Christ in the Bible, it now professes to accept both. But the Bible is interpreted in a manner that is pleasing to the unrenewed heart, while its solemn and vital truths are made of no effect. Early writings, 263 and 264 gives a very important picture of Satan. He, who is the father of lies, blinds and deceives the whole world by sending forth his angels to speak for the apostles and to make it appear that they contradict what they wrote by the dictation of the Holy Ghost when on earth. 
Whoa. Satan delights to throw professed Christians and all the world into uncertainty about the word of God. That holy book cuts directly across his tract and thwarts his plans. Therefore, he leads men to doubt the divine origin of the Bible. And that is exactly where we are today. So, what kind of lessons do we as seventh day, can we take away from these things as Seventh-day Adventists? By saying all these things, I'm not implying that my dear friends who happen to be on the other side of the fence on women's ordination believe all that. I'm not saying that for one moment. But I am saying that I believe that they may not realize all these things and who is behind the kinds of things that they espouse. The radical women's rights leaders of the 19th century were far beyond their time. We have seen how modern feminism has encompassed most of their thought but has moved far beyond. The feminist movement is away from order, creation order, if you will. It's away from authority, God's authority, his word's authority, man's authority in the home and in the church. Authority is a big thing because we like to be in charge. You know, we like to be on top. And it doesn't go well with each of us to have to submit in any way. And gentlemen, there, there's a, a role for humility and submission on your part, too. Amen. You know, It's not just women that should submit. All of us need to be submissive to the word of God and be gracious. And there is really no place, while, while I'm at it, let me just say there's no place for any kind of meanness or oppression. That is strictly from the Bible. Uh, that man is to be kind and gentle and not mean. And any of the abuse or things like that that sometimes we are accused of should never have any factual bearing in any of our lives. It's a very sad thing when we see that. Feminism is a movement into self, be what you can, the human potential, seek the God within you. You were made for more than just washing dishes. This is all type two feminism. It is a moving into jealousy for sexism goes both ways. It's not just one way. So, we now understand Ellen White's warning in 1 Testimonies 4.21. Those who feel called out to join the movement in favor of women's rights and the so-called dress reform might as well sever all connection with the third angel's message. The spirit which attends the one cannot be in harmony with the other. The scriptures are plain upon the relations and rights of men and women. So as a young person doing this research, I read these things 
I had to examine my own heart really carefully. I had to decide where I really stood on the issues. And as time has gone on, I've had a chance to study more and find out that really the research I did way back then was very valid. That it hasn't gone away, it has only intensified. The scriptures are plain upon the relations and rights of men and women. And we now have before us very important decisions to make as a church. And we, as Seventh-day Adventists, need to realize that the spirit of gospel, real love, a giving of oneself, Adventist theology and the Adventist hermeneutic of scripture are not compatible with some of the feminist principles that we have shared. Spiritualism does not always assume the medium wrapping guys. Watch out for the philosophical spiritualism embodied in feminism and its effects on culture. God help us to keep our eyes and ears open so that the principles do not subtly come in and suddenly surprise us by becoming a part of what we hold dear. That's a very, very dangerous thing. So as a young person looking at those very important things, I decided that Yes, I wanted to be in ministry. Yes, I wanted to work for God. I wanted definitely to have a, an impact on those around me. Amen. But I wanted to be extremely careful how I read the scriptures and the rights of men and women, Ellen White said, were very plain. And I wanted to follow that with my whole heart. So my husband and I have had a very exciting ministry together. He was pastor of the church. I worked right alongside. I preached on, on Sabbaths. I worked with him giving Bible studies to the women. I, I worked right alongside. Um, we did both health of it, but both of us did health. So I went out and did cooking classes and other kinds of classes. So many things that we can do together. When we went as missionaries, I worked in the chaplain's department. I worked in um, the health education department, also in the church. So many things that we can do. We ought not be afraid in any way of how we should come off and that, oh dear, we can't be ordained, so therefore there's nothing to do. The, the world, God, Jesus is coming soon, and here we are spinning our wheels on this unimportant issue that is really, really important, but in face of the Lord coming soon to get caught up on it is, is very sad. So I just want to appeal to each one of you to rethink what's going on in the culture around you. See if it in any way affects the way you believe and re-examine, rethink, and yes, um, embrace the Bible as it reads. Amen. Let us pray. Kind Father, you are more than good. You are kind. You are gracious. And the government that you set out is the one we only want. We want that eternal giving spirit that Jesus had. The kingdom that he said was not of this world. He taught about the poor in spirit. He taught about the meek. He taught about 
those who need to know the word because they are so hungry and thirsty. And indeed, that's what we want. So Lord, teach us servanthood from the depths of our spirit. Help us to shoo the spiritualistic aspects of Satan's control and be willing to, to give our all and work for you with all of our hands and our heart and our mind and our spirit, all of us together towards the kingdom. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I would like to encourage you all to study more deeply into this issue. It's not an easy one, but the sources are out on the Internet now. You do a search on Victoria Woodhull, you come up with more than you ever wanted to know, believe me. Same thing for Elizabeth Cady Stanton, same thing for any of these um, feminist theologians that I've mentioned, and you'll find much, much more, I promise you. Don't take my word for it. Do your own study. Think hard about where we're going as a people, how we're treating the Word of God, and then ask the Lord to fill you with His humility and the spirit of His kingdom so that you and I can one day say, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for Him, and He will save us, and we will all go home together. This is my prayer for you, and it's my prayer for me. God bless each one of you. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.